All right, if you would, would you please stand with me as we read our passage this morning? It's going to be Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 56. All right, so pay close attention as we open God's word and read it together. And they led him away. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said these things, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would open it up to us and speak to us um, because we need to hear it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. 
All right. So there are moments in our lives that have all been etched into our memory. I'm sure you can think of some. Maybe there's family events, there's birthdays, there's graduations, there's weddings, there's starting a new job, there's family vacations you remember as a kid that you really remember with fondness, right? They're just kind of etched in there. You remember every detail of what happened. And other such moments may not be as happy as those or as celebratory as those. You know, maybe it's a loved one getting diagnosed with a certain medical condition. You remember what that's like. Or maybe just you yourself or your family going through a season of great personal loss or maybe even a national tragedy. But there they are, whether they're good or they're bad, they're, they're seared into our, our consciousness. We don't forget them. In the book, The Only Plane in the Sky, author Garrett Graff offers a glimpse into what it was like to live through all the events of September 11th, 2001. And he does this through a collection of like, firsthand interviews that he compiled over years um, and turned it into a, an oral history of, of the day. He writes, these stories capture only a single moment in time as he interviews people who were at different places in government, going to work, watching things on TV, um, kind of all these different vantage points. Um, so they capture only a single moment in time, but to understand all that comes after, we must first understand what it was like to live through all the drama and the tragedy. The details of what happened on 9-11, for instance, as shocking and as painful as they are, are a shared part of our experience as Americans. And each year it's not uncommon to see the words never forget kind of etched on social media, on signs, um, all over the place, right? But if we're being honest, we would like to forget, right? That's not something we remember with fondness and excitement and joy, right? Um, our history, whether it's personal history or shared history, can be painful for us to remember. And our text this morning recounts a day that's even darker and even more painful than that or any other day in your life or the history of the world. It's the day that God's son, our Lord Jesus, was crucified. It's a day that if we're honest with ourselves, is mentally, spiritually, and emotionally hard. It's hard to spend a lot of time thinking about the crucifixion. <clears throat> Yet it's a day that we, we must think about. We need to think about it because it's a day central to the life of the church and it's central to your life if you're a believer here this morning. Nonetheless, if we're not careful, we can neglect the reality of the crucifixion, right? We can kind of gloss over it sometimes on our way to the resurrection, to the upside of the story uh, that is important, right? But we can neglect the reality of the crucifixion and of the death and the burial of Jesus and its, and its significance for us. And when we do that, when we do neglect that, we can also miss the reality of who Jesus is and the reality of who our God is. And so with that in mind today, that's what we're going to focus on. If you're taking notes, um, we're, we're going to really focus on that question. What can we learn about God from the crucifixion? And I think there are many things we can learn, but I want to focus on three things specifically. We can learn that the judgment of God is approaching in verses 26 through 31. We can learn that the salvation of God is assured in verses 32 through 43. And we can learn that the redemption of God's people is accomplished in verses 44 through 56. So let's start with this first point. The judgment of God is approaching. We can learn this from a close examination of the crucifixion. Have you ever read a mystery novel or watched a mystery drama on TV? Hannah and I really like to do that. Um, we love mysteries. Or even if you played a game like Clue, uh, where nothing was really as it seemed, but you're trying to figure out the story and who done it, but 
just when you think you figured it out, something happens and you get some more information and it's like, well, it wasn't what I, I thought it was at all. Um, and so in a similar way, this initial scene that we're coming to in verses 26 to 31 has a lot of those same elements, right? Nothing was really as it seemed over the course of the crucifixion narrative. As Jesus is led away to the place called the skull, he's followed by a great multitude of the people we see in verse 27. And many of those same people were the same people that just a few verses before that we looked at last week called on him to be crucified. They're the ones that called to Pilate, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And so the crowd had just helped pronounce judgment on an innocent person. And now here they were kind of seeing that through. They were walking alongside him as if to make sure that was going to happen and actually take place. But also in those throngs of people, Luke identifies women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And so we see these women are specifically from Jerusalem. So these were local women who weren't excited about the outcome of the trial before Pilate, right? They were there to mourn the injustice of an innocent man that's taking place. They, they really thought they knew what was happening. They saw injustice and they were mourning for injustice. But then something that happens next should, would no doubt catch them by surprise and catch us by surprise, right? Jesus, who is beaten, who's tired, who's weak to the point of near death already before actually going to the cross, turns to them and says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. In verse 28, Jesus says, you've got this all wrong. The judgment being pronounced here is for the women and the crowd. It's, it's not for Jesus. Uh, commentator Joel Green says in his commentary on Luke that there's a direct correlation between the rejection of Jesus and the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem. See, Jesus, the Messiah, had been present with the people. He'd been doing ministry, living, breathing, eating, celebrating feast days among these people in Jerusalem for years. <clears throat> and he was the one that they'd been waiting for for centuries. And yet he was right in their midst. And they not only didn't see him, it's not like they just missed it. They rejected him. They saw him and didn't want him. They rejected who he was. And this departure of Jesus as he walks out of the city walls towards the place where he was going to be crucified um, is very much more than it seems, right? It's, it's not just what's on the surface, although that's awful, right? A man is being led to die. But it's really indicative of the blessing of God that had been present in Jerusalem for so long was leaving the city. And it was being replaced by an imminent judgment. And in, in verses 29 through 30, Jesus says a little bit more about this. He says, for behold... The days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And this is a reference to the coming siege of the city and the destruction of the temple that's coming in AD 70 um, against Titus and the Roman soldiers when they come in and lay siege to Jerusalem and do horrible things to the people, right? There's some historical accounts in, in reading and studying for for this sermon, it was so bad that many people were offering up their children in their place and they were even eating their own children because they were starving. These were horrible things that were happening to those people. And Jesus is predicting that, right? He's, he's pronouncing judgment on this place that has rejected him and this people that has rejected him. But the judgment of God is also, excuse me, but it's also a pronouncement of judgment for anyone who reject Christ, right? Not just the people then in Jerusalem, but for us now. The judgment of God is, real, is a reality for those who reject him. 
This judgment is one that Jesus is saying is going to make those who experience it wish to be put out of their misery, right? God's judgment is real and it is severe against those who reject who he is. And so there's this idea building of a coming darkness that we see in the text here as the presence and the glory of the Lord is departing from the people physically and spiritually, right? As this is happening. And while this judgment is sure to come, as Jesus says that it is, these aren't the final words that Jesus is leaving us with. And that's important. So the judgment of God is approaching, but point number two, if you're taking notes, the salvation of God is assured. And so one of the things that I think is so striking about this passage is the way that Jesus doesn't waste a moment of what's happening, right? He's engaged the whole time he's walking towards his death. Um, he's, he's not wasting the pain or the suffering. And so each step he's taking towards the cross, he's intentionally interacting with people and, and intercessing for people. He's praying for people. These are the very people that he came to save, and they're the very people that are sealing his, his earthly fate. We see in verses 32 through 43 that, Jesus, that just as Jesus reveals God's judgment is approaching for those who reject him, his mercy and his salvation is assured for those who would receive him, who would repent and believe in him. The second part of the narrative offers us a glimpse into one of the three offices of Christ that the Westminster um, Standards mention in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 23. This is Christ executing the office of our Redeemer, and he does it in three ways, right? His prophet, priest, and king. And so question 25 looks specifically at how he executes the office of priest, which you, you kind of are seeing as he's making his way to the cross. So the question is, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer, Christ executeth the office of a priest and is once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. And we see those things, right? Jesus is reflecting this priestly role, even as he's weak, even as he's suffering. And so in verse 34, we see Christ's love for his enemies as he prays for them. So look at that moment with me. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. You know, let that sink in. Jesus is interceding. He's crying out to God on the cross, right? For his enemies, for the people who are looking at him, probably laughing at him, mocking him, as, as we see in these verses. Those are the ones that made sure he would be hanging there between the thieves. But this prayer is a prayer of love for his enemies, not a prayer of malice, not a prayer of hesitation. He, and he's not begrudgingly praying, right? He's crying out. He wants God to forgive these people. And so let that sink in this morning. This prayer is, is huge. When you read it, it just almost takes your breath away. But it's only a glimpse, only a glimpse of the continual intercession, the continual prayer that Jesus is making for his people right now as he sits at God's right hand. So think about that as well. This is just a, all these things, as profound as they are, are just pointing to something even greater about who Jesus is and what he not only has done, but he's doing. <clears throat> and right after this, we see another conversation taking place, this time between the two thieves on either side of Jesus. In the two men, there's evidence of two very different types of hearts, right? And you see this a lot in the Gospels. There's kind of a juxtaposition of this type of person and this type of person. <clears throat> and so in these moments of extreme pain and anguish, one thief 
calls on Jesus to take action. In verse 39, he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he's concerned with self-preservation almost. You know, he hopes Jesus is the Christ so he can get them down from there. And can you relate to, to this man at all? Who, who is it that you say Christ is? Why do you want to know him? Is it because of what he can do for you? Or is it because of who he is? Do you just want his help? Do you just want him to take away your pain and your suffering is real and as important as that, as that is? And he cares about that. But is that, is that why you want to know him? Because of what he can do for you? Or is it because of a desire to know who he is and what he's like and to be a part of his goodness, being enthralled in that? <clears throat> the second thief is the total opposite, right? Whereas this one man shows us a pretty intense self-focus, <clears throat> the second thief recognizes Jesus' innocence, right? And he recognizes his own guilt, and in verses 40 and 41, we see this. He knows that he deserves death. But then he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He even says Jesus' name. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so you see kind of a change of heart happening for this thief as he's hanging there. He's, he's repenting. He's acknowledging who he is before God. And he's acknowledging who God is. And God just happens to be next to him. So this is a beautiful, clear display of what faith and repentance look like, looking at the life of this thief, knowing the depths of our own sin and our own unworthiness and turning to Christ for help. He's our, he's our only source of help. And the thief knew this, that he was his only hope. And he was not simply getting, trying to get off the cross, but he was trying to be with Jesus, to be where Jesus was. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He wanted to be where Jesus was. And if you're here today, and if you're a Christian, this is a glimpse of the power of God to save sinners. This is what he's done in your life. He saved this thief in the same way he saves you, and he saves me by his word. Because you hear, hear what Jesus says in verse 43. He says, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. So his salvation is certain. It's, it's going to happen. And I think one of the most mind-blowing parts of this is, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty in the Reformed tradition and how he pursues us and comes after us. And this is really a picture of that. He pursued one man to the cross, right? He, he was there. But pursuing him in the midst of the atoning work that, that was taking place at the same time. I want to read what J.C. Ryle has to say about this thief just briefly in his commentary on Luke. <clears throat> he says... The time when the thief was saved was the hour of our Lord's greatest weakness. He was hanged in agony on the cross. Yet even then he heard and granted a sinner's petition, and he opened to him the gate of life. Surely this was power. The man whom our Lord saved was a wicked sinner at the point of death, with nothing in his past life to commend him and nothing notable in his present condition but a humble prayer. Yet even he was plucked like a brand from the burning. Surely this was mercy. <clears throat> and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're, we're glad you're here. What a Sunday to be at church. Um, and just as God in his sovereignty came to the thief that he encountered on the cross, your being here this morning is no accident. Christ is powerful and merciful to save you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, 
or how far beyond his reach you believe yourself to be this morning. Think about that. No matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, or how far gone you think you are from God's reach, the crucifixion tells us you're not. To the repentant heart that trusts in Christ, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. You will. You will be his. And from that moment on to eternity. So this is true of the person who repents and believes in Christ. He's paid your debt of sin with his own blood. And the salvation of God is assured to those who call on him in faith. Let's not miss that as we, as we dig into this text and look at that this morning. There is a, an infinite amount that could be said about this passage. Studying this week has just been kind of overwhelming. It's like, what do you say? <laughs> There's so much you could say. And all of it valuable, all of it important. Uh, but one final thing I do want to mention is if... Excuse me. So if the salvation of God is assured, also in the crucifixion, so this is number three if you're taking notes, the redemption of God's people is accomplished. And so this is the third and kind of final place we're going to focus on this morning. If you've ever been to a Tenebrae service on Good Friday, um, or even if you haven't, one of the things that is so striking about it is the candles in the service, right? So the Tenebrae service, you're recounting kind of the passion narrative, the crucifixion, and kind of each step along the way as you're in the service, there are candles that are extinguished one by one, and the room just gets darker and darker and darker until finally there's no more light in the room. Um, So it culminates with the room being complete darkness and complete silence. Um, And that really represents what's happening here in the passage. Christ's presence is departing, right? In the the Tenebrae service, it's representative of him departing the room. Um, In this Luke account, Christ is departing the world, right? His, his blessing, his physical presence in the world, the huge blessing that that is, God made flesh, the thing that all, all of us really long for a lot of days. <clears throat> that, was, that was here, and now it's departing. And so we can see from Luke's account of the crucifixion, this is, this is what that is. This, is. this is the light leaving. And then verse 44, you see this in the natural world reflected, Right? For three hours, the sun's light is obstructed and there's darkness in the world. And it's, a, it's pointing to a cosmic reality that God's son is about to die. This is for all to see. You know, we talk about general revelation and special revelation. And this is for all people to see. Um, so there can be no mistaking that God's doing something. And it's, it's big what he's doing. <clears throat> and this would have been a sign to all people that they were witnessing an event like they probably never witnessed before. You know, it's like, what's going on? Luke also says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So this reminds me a lot of special revelation to an extent, right? These are people in the temple. These are the Jewish people. These are the ones who love God and were looking for the Messiah and who many of them rejected him. And as they're in the temple, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place where God's presence was known to be was torn, And so this was telling God's people, not just people in general, but the people of God, specifically, he was doing something, and they need to take notice of what it is. So this is the climax of this passage in a lot of ways, especially when we get to verse 46, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. It's finished. It is finished. That was the moment. Everything 
that we celebrate as Christians, everything that we look forward to as Christians, all comes back to this particular moment in time, a real moment in real time that happened in our world. And that's, that's what's so profound. Jesus gave up his life, and he removed the curtain of separation between God and between those who would cling to Christ in repentance and faith. The price that must be paid for our sin was paid, and it was paid in full at the very last breath of Jesus as he gave up his life of his own accord, which points back to John's gospel in, verses, in John 10, 18, where Jesus mentions this. He says, you know, no one takes my life from me. I, I give it freely. And we see this reflected. This whole scene also points back to Isaiah 53, which we read part of earlier. That was the prophecy about the servant of God who would come. And it had been fulfilled in these moments that we're reading about right now. And as the scene unfolds, it's also important not to miss what's next, right? There, there are a lot, of, a lot of things to take our breath away in this passage, but let's look at Jesus' closest friends and his family, those that were with him during all this. Things were not going as they expected, right? They thought they knew what was happening, where things were tracking, and they were excited. Jesus was the king who'd come to reign and make all things new. But they didn't think it was going to look like this, right? Jesus wasn't wasn't supposed to die as a criminal. He was supposed to reign as a king. And so this was the time for them to panic, right? This is the time to freak out when everything seems to be falling apart around them. But it's not. Verse 49 says, they stood at a distance and watched these things. It says they watched. So many times when we in the church feel threatened, and you can look at any point in history, whether recent or far away, but when we feel our our religious freedoms being threatened or we feel persecuted or any of those things. And what's our instinct? What do we want to do in those times when, when that happens? We want to respond, right? We want to act. We want to beef up and do something, right? But here we don't see that. We see instead a glimpse in the people who are closest to Jesus, a glimpse of quiet faithfulness. They're watching things unfold. They're taking it in. They know that God hasn't left them, but they don't know what he's doing. And so then in verses 50 through 56, we see a little bit more about this. His faithful followers are taking steps to bury him properly, right? And some of the other gospel accounts, we see how they're, you know, there are priests there at the burial. They're trying to give him a proper burial. <clears throat> but while they, couldn't, while they couldn't have understood what was coming next, they loved Jesus and they still believed that he was who he said he was. And I think that's important for us to remember because so often when bad things happen in our lives, when things don't go like we want, or even like they should, it can be easy for us to want to want to curse God, right? To ask, like, why did you stop caring about me, God? Where are you in this? And, and I think the example of those closest to the Lord in the moments of him physically leaving the world, right? Him being crucified should just be something to challenge us, challenge us and and help us think through those times in our own lives when we when we want to turn our back on God, when we want to doubt that he's good and doubt who he is. Let us look to these faithful followers, these first faithful followers of his. They knew that he hadn't, he hadn't forgotten them and that they could still trust him, even though they didn't understand. And I think that's important. We don't always get to understand, but we do have to know and should know based on God's word, how good he is and how much he loves us and how much his plan is 
going to be seen through to the end. Nothing's going to stop it. And so all the things that Jesus told them leading up to these moments weren't any less true before the crucifixion, after the crucifixion, than they were before. <clears throat> we even see continued faithfulness for the women mentioned because they are going to go home and they're going to prepare um, for his final burial. They want him to have proper treatment, right? And so just as they're going to go and prepare spices and, and ointments, for his burial, he wouldn't be needing those things, right? But they didn't know that. And one of the other things, just briefly that's mentioned, but this is one of the great things about Luke is how succinct he is. He just doesn't really waste his words. But he says in verse 56, and just briefly, almost, you know, not a big deal on the surface. He says, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And I think this is just another evidence to us that these people hadn't, turn their back on God. They still knew they could trust in their God. And they still observed the Sabbath in light of everything that was going on. And there was a lot of discussion at the time of Jesus' ministry that he was going to abolish the Sabbath, right? And I think this is proof of them knowing that they can still trust God. They still needed the Sabbath that he'd commanded them. And they were submitting to his commandments, even in the midst of hardship. <clears throat> and so through both his death and his resurrection, the rescue of God's people has been accomplished. This, this has happened, right? Jesus' work didn't end in death, but in rising in victory over death. Sorry to spoil whoever's preaching next week, right? This, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to celebrate the resurrection. But to do that fully, we have to give attention to this, to the crucifixion, to the death and burial of Jesus. It's equally important. It goes together. And to neglect the crucifixion and only emphasize the resurrection would be to neglect a central part of our faith as believers, right? The true faith includes Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. And so if you're in Christ, it's true that you should celebrate a risen Jesus every day of your life, right? But it's equally true that you've been purchased by God through Christ's death on the cross. So as his church, we come to him this morning as a purchased people who celebrate a resurrected king. And we see that through these important realities, right? We see this in the judgment of God that is approaching. We see this in the salvation of God that is assured. And we see that in the redemption of God's people that is accomplished through Christ's work on the cross. And so this is where there's mercy in the midst of the darkness of sin. Sin doesn't get the final word. Judgment against those who reject Christ is coming, and that is true, and it is real, and we need to preach that and share that with those that we love, right? But just as Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our redemption has been accomplished because of the shed blood of Jesus. Because of him, we've been bought back from the darkness. And because of these things, we can come by God's grace this morning and have our faith strengthened as we take part in the Lord's Supper, in the, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we reflect on his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, these real things that happened so that we could have redemption and that we could live with God, for God, not just on earth, but forever. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the crucifixion, and we thank you that it is something that's hard to to grapple with. It's hard to talk about. I, th I think that we need it to be hard. And I pray that in the midst of that, though, we wouldn't miss what you've done. We wouldn't miss your atoning work. 
we wouldn't miss the reality of you purchasing a people for yourself. And I, I pray that this morning we would celebrate that in our hearts. It would, as we think about our church and how you've sustained us and how you're growing us and how we're becoming a particular congregation, I pray that we would celebrate that because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. I pray this morning that you would be with us as we partake of the Lord's Supper in the next few minutes, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would show us grace that we need. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.